as well. Would you like to take your Bibles from the seat backs in front of you? If you were here last week, um, Mark was speaking in the evening, uh, the beginning of a new series uh, for the first couple of months or so of this year. We're going to be looking at the heart of the good news. What is the heart of what God has done for us in Jesus? And we're doing it by looking at um, four chapters in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're in the middle of chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter tonight. I think in your Bibles, that's on page 1132. But I was just thinking, um, since the start of the year, Becky and I have had quite a few long car journeys. We've had a little bit of time to get away a couple of times, and we've gone off for a night here and a night there. Um, We've spoken at a couple of conferences. And I don't know what you do when it comes to long car journeys. So if you're, you know, in a marriage, you probably spend lots of time kind of like talking to each other and, you know, sharing your your dreams and your hopes and your fears. Well, Becky and I have been married for 30 years. Um, so kind of like, we're a little bit beyond that now. We have the occasional conversation, but, you know, <laughs> most, most of the time I know what she thinks. She knows what I think. So we just sit there in lovely, companionable silence. And most of the time we actually used to lis- listen to music. But we've hit upon a new thing. Becky said, we should listen to audiobooks. So I don't know, anybody else into audiobooks? Yeah, okay. I've never listened to an audiobook in my life. So this is a bit of a new thing for us. And, and Becky sort of said, well, we need to choose a book that we both like. Um, let's be safe. Let's go for something we both know. Let's see what our common interests are. So she went out and she bought Lord of the Rings. Okay, right. So Lord of the Rings audiobook. Technically, at the moment, we only own Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book of the trilogy. Even so, it's still 24 hours long, okay? So um, we've been going for about 18 hours so far, and we've just got out of the mines of Moria, if, you've, if you know the story. Um, it, is, it just goes on forever. It was literally two hours before the book even started, because it begins with all these appendices. And it's a really interesting experience. So it's, it's quite unintentionally funny at times, because occasionally the sat-nav joins in. Um, so you get these really odd things like, you know, one does not simply walk into Mordor, take the second exit and take the A127, you know. It's, it's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. Um, and then uh, we, there's all these bits that we'd forgotten about, um, that, you know, because we, we're used to probably watching the films. It's, it's like decades since I read the books. And so we're used to the story as told by the films. And, of course, because film is a shorter medium, it cuts out all sorts of things. And so there's like... A, a few hours, it seems, of stuff that the films just skip over. Um, I, to be honest, listening to it, there's quite a few bits I wish the films were, you know, the book was more like the film in some way. We just skipped over. Every now and then, somebody, you know, the, the audio sort of says, he lifted his voice and began to sing. We go, no! You know, because we know we're in for like 10 minutes of somebody singing at us, you know. I was thinking getting T-shirts made that say, I survived Tom Bombadil, because that was like a really hard... <laughs> That was a really hard three hours, that little bit. The film just completely jumped over the top of it. But what I realized is that actually the story is a big, big story, but sometimes what you need is you need the abridged version. So I don't know about you, but when I grew up, my parents used to have, um, they called it Reader's Digest versions of the classics. This is like the classic books, but they'd kind of like edited them down slightly. So you... You got the story, but you weren't confused by all the sort of subplots and side issues and long descriptions and all that sort of thing. But sometimes you actually want 
the short version. It helps you get the big picture, helps you hold the framework in your mind, and it helps you understand the most important things. In, in some ways, actually, the abridged version, the short version, helps you go to the heart of it. And there's something about that in the passage that we're going to read tonight. So, page 1132, it begins in verse 12 with the word, therefore. Now, I, I know I've said this numerous times at All Saints, but whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what's it's therefore? In other words, therefore is a linking word. It tells you that we've just had an argument and this is the implication of it. But if you go backwards and you look at the passage that Mark spoke on last week, the beginning of the chapter, chapter 5, it also begins, therefore. So what we see is we're actually in the middle of a much longer argument. But in the middle of this long argument, Paul drops in this kind of big picture thing that he wants to speak to. So I'm going to pick it up from verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, now, if you've been around the church for any time, you know that's Adam. That's the story of the Garden of Eden. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And at this point, Paul thinks, okay, hang on, I need to explain that. And so he breaks off and he starts to, uh, to explain. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law in other words, how do people know that they're breaking the law if the law hasn't been given? Nevertheless, death, which is the consequence of sin, reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, who was the one who brought the law, much, much later. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. In other words, Adam did have a law that he broke. He had one command, don't eat the fruit of that tree. So he did break a rule, but everybody else afterwards... There weren't any rules that God had given at that point until Moses came along. Nevertheless, death reigned over them, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow? to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life? through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass, one sin, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase or, or be shown or be visible. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is some deep, deep theology. But what I want to try and do is, is break it down so that we can see the big picture. Because the big picture is really important because you and I, our lives have a story. And our lives are always lived out within bigger stories. So the start here is is telling us the big story of Adam. Adam, the first human. God's plan for Adam is God's plan for humanity. What he did, as you know, if you read the creation story, you go back to Genesis and you read through, what happened was God created the heavens and the earth, and what he did was he created something that was good. Everything that God made was good until he came to us, and when he came to us, it was very good. Because unique amongst the whole of creation, God put his image into us. That we were made in the image and the likeness of God. That he, he made us with the ability to reflect his glory and to show forth something of his goodness in the world. And he did that because he had a special plan for us. That in the midst of creation, we were to rule and reign on his behalf in his creation. That he actually put Adam and Eve and he told them to work the garden, but he told them to rule over it and to subdue it. And he... He wanted them to act in his stead. Now, he wasn't saying, here's the earth, do what you like with it, you're in charge. That's not the point. What he was saying was, here's the earth, I want you to reign as my stewards. And the point of stewardship is that, yeah, you've got all the authority, but you're still accountable. Not that you get to do what you like with it and use the world selfishly and build your own empires, but you get to rule and reign on behalf of somebody else. In his way. You're meant to do it in the way that he would want. For his glory. For his increase. That's what a steward does. A steward takes what he's given and then works it to give it back to the master. Improved and bettered. That was our task in creation. To bring forth the fruit of creativity of the earth. And to to help tend the earth to become all that God wanted it to be. But you'll know the story of Adam and Eve. That he, he created them and he put them in the garden. He gave them just one rule. The one thing you can do just to show that you rely upon me and you depend upon me. Don't eat from that one tree. And then the snake, the serpent came in. The one who opposed God from before the creation of us. And he came in and he said, you can't really trust God. He doesn't have good plans for you. You know, He's withholding things from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Stupid really because we are already made like him in his image and likeness. But the serpent kind of insinuates that, you know, no, no, don't depend upon God. Don't believe God. Decide for yourself what's right. Depend upon yourself. And you can do that just by the one thing that he told you not to do. If you just do that one thing, then you're taking matters into your own hands. And, of course, that's what they did. And it's what we've done ever since. Every single one of us has done the same thing. We've decided, God, I'm not going to trust you. I think I know better than you do. And so we've turned to our own ideas. And we've said, I'm not going to depend upon you. I'm going to depend upon myself. I'm going to look to something else. I'm going to try and take something that I can control rather than depend on one to whom I have to submit. And that subtle thing of putting ourselves at the center is actually, according to Paul, according to the story the Bible tells, a turning away from life to death. Because... It looks like it's attractive, but actually what you're doing is you're turning your back on true knowledge to substitute it for your own. You're turning your back on true life to try and find life in other things, and those other things will never satisfy, will never give life 
In fact, I said it's part of a longer argument. If we went right back to the beginning of Romans, it's what Paul says in chapter 1. From the beginning, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, there's enough revelation in creation that we should know there's a God. But although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, worship, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you turn away from the light, you could turn to the dark. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, rather than worshipping the creator, we started to worship the creation ourselves and other things that look like us or that we think we can take control over. If we don't worship God, we always end up worshipping something, trying to derive ultimate meaning and purpose and strength from it. And Paul says this is sin. Now, we tend to think of sin as being law-breaking. You know, what, 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 most of us probably don't think of ourselves really as sinners because if I sort of said to you, are you a good person? We'd probably go, yeah, I actually am a good person. I don't actually feel guilty that often because I, you know, mostly try and do the right thing. I don't actually break the rules that often. You know, every now and then I break a rule, who doesn't, you know, but, you know, I know most of the time I'm trying to do the right thing. Well, the thing is, Paul's talking about sin that existed in the world even before the rules were given. Before Moses came along with the revelation of God's heart and the law, there was still, sin was in the world because people didn't know that they were sinning because there wasn't a, a law to show them that they'd broken something. But nevertheless, sin was in the world and we knew that because the consequences of Adam's first sin were still being felt. So ultimately what we need to see is that sin is not, it's not ultimately about breaking laws it's actually about turning away from a, a dependence upon God, substituting a knowledge that comes from him for one that you, your own ideas, your own thoughts, putting yourself at the center. That's the essence of what it is. So in the previous chapter, chapter four, Paul talks about how even before the law was given by Moses, Abraham somehow knew how to please God by faith. He didn't really, he didn't have the law to know how to please God, but he pleased God because he had faith. In the same way, what he's saying here is, even before Moses came along and gave the law, people were still displeasing God by living their own way, substituting their own knowledge, depending upon things that were not God. That's the big story, and the point is, because Adam did it, everyone who followed since acts out the same story. Because we're all descendants of Adam. Now, that, that would explain a lot about the world. I often say to the interns that if, if the Bible was 11 chapters long, it would explain the whole world. It, literally, it's all you need. If it, Genesis 1 to 11 just explains the lot. It says, this is what God did. He created a really good world. He put us in it. We messed it up. And it, the first 11 chapters of the Bible just chart that whole story, end up with divided people who don't understand each other, who are trying to kill each other, all sorts of problems going on. Everything about the world you need to know is in the first 11 chapters. Except, first 11 chapters don't contain a lot of hope. That kicks in 
when God calls Abraham and starts to build a new family upon the earth through whom he can bring salvation. See, the big story of Adam is a dark story. It's a story that you and I are under because we live in a world that is experiencing the consequences. Not the good creation that God created, but the fallen, broken one. Not the lives with God that would go on forever in joy and peace and love, but the broken and stressed ones that we live, often in darkness. That's the big story of Adam. But fortunately, there's another big story here as well. There's the big story of Jesus. I had a little hint of it at the end of that, because it says in the end of verse 14, Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So in other words, Adam, you could sort of say Adam basically stands for the whole of humanity. Think of humanity as being like a massive family tree. You go up it, up it, up it, up it. Eventually, we're all going to come to the point we're all related to Adam. And that person from whom a big family tree comes, a family tree of failure, unfortunately, is a pattern of Jesus from whom a new family tree comes, which is a family tree of faith. And so Paul here talks about it as a gift. Actually, that kind of gift bit is, is referring back to what Mark was talking about last week. So just as the big story of Adam tells us what God wants and how we fail to do it, the big story about Jesus tells about what God has done to put it right, to right our wrongs. He's given us a gift. And the word that gets used again and again is grace. And that points us back to what Mark was preaching on last week. Grace by which we are justified, which means we're made right with God. Even though there's many things that we've failed to do that we should have done, many things that we've done that we really shouldn't have done, Many ways in which we've turned aside from the one who can give life, we've substituted our own knowledge, and we've tried to depend on our own strengths. Even though we've done that, God gives us a gift, which we don't deserve. We call that grace. And through that, we experience peace with God and with ourselves and with the others. We experience love from God, even when we're his enemies. We experience hope, even in a broken world, because there's a better one coming and we're going to be part of it. That's the gift. The first human messed it up, and we're all dealing with the consequences, but God has sent Jesus, the second true human, the true human, to get it right. Not just to deal with Adam's mess, but to deal with the mess that every single one of us has done to add to it since then. Which is why he talks again and again about how when sin was in the world, you can't even compare the gift of God because it's so much greater than one person's sin. It deals with every single thing that has been done ever since. And how does he do it? Well, he does it basically by fulfilling the call that God gave to all humanity and Adam in the first place. He put Adam in the garden. He said, I want you to do this. I want you to, to love me, to trust me, to depend upon me, to believe me. I want you to be my steward. And Jesus comes along and Jesus is obedient. Jesus puts God first all the time. He never tries to substitute his own knowledge. He resists temptations to do things another way. He constantly is obedient to the Father, obedient to the Father, everything the Father is asking. Paul says in another letter to the Philippians, obedient even unto death on a cross, even unto fulfilling the role of taking everybody's sins onto himself, even though he had no sin. He took it all onto himself to fulfill the Father's will. So who's the one who's worthy? Well, Jesus is the one who's worthy as we sing. So the big question about all of this is, we've got two stories here. We've got the big story of Adam, and we've got the big story of Jesus. 
What about the big story of you and me? What about our lives and our stories? What, what story do they fit into? And the point is that what's going on here is that there's a choice. There's a gift that's been offered, but the gift needs to be received. And just in the beginning, God's plan for Adam, plan for the whole of humanity, was given with freedom to either choose it or reject it. So, his plan renewed and improved in Jesus is the same. It's given to us with freedom. We can ignore it, we can reject it, or we can receive it as a gift. And the result of that is really, really significant. Whether or not you receive the gift that God has given us in Jesus determines which of these two big stories you're going to be living in. And he goes so far as to say, in one, you're in death. In the other, you are in life. And not only life, but reigning in life. Like, kind of superabundant, more than conquerors. Overcoming in, every, in all these things. There's a literal choice, he's saying. A literal choice between life and death. Now, people get sort of uneasy when you start talking about things like that in church. You know, are you really saying that believing in Jesus or not is a literal choice between life and death? And the answer is yes. That's the way the Bible presents it. So why doesn't it feel like that? Because there'll be in any group of people, people who've said yes to Jesus and people who haven't yet said yes to Jesus. And when they go out the door, they're pretty much going to look the same. And actually their experience of life often is going to be pretty similar, right? And those of us who have said yes to Jesus and we received God's gift, we go about our lives and actually our experience of life is often not dissimilar from the experience of people who are not walking with the Lord. We know it should be, but it often isn't. So is this really a choice, a literal choice between life and death? And Paul says, yeah, it, it actually is. The problem is it's not revealed immediately. So when Adam and Eve were confronted with this apple that was pleasing to the eye and good for food, and they were told by the serpent, God says to you, if you eat that, you'll die. You will not die. That's what the serpent said. And they looked at it and thought, well, it's just an apple. We're going to eat it. We're not going to die. And, and the serpent, in a sense, was right, but he was seriously, seriously wrong. Because when they ate it, they didn't die immediately. But they did die eventually, which they would never have done if they had not done that. See, the problem is when we substitute the knowledge that God gives and start to say, I'm going to make my own mind up, thank you very much, God, when we stop depending upon God and we turn to other things to depend upon, what happens basically is we begin to curl in upon ourselves. We begin inexorably to become self-centered. And the problem is, by cutting ourselves off from the source of life and going to other things, they are not going to ultimately satisfy us. Our lives begin to call, just curl in upon themselves to the point that well, that principle is at work in the world. That's why the world is decaying. It's why bodies don't last. It's ultimately, we become smaller, not bigger. So we come to the end of our lives and we just, we've turned away from life and so we've turned in towards death. So is it a choice between death and life? Yes, it is, but you don't realize because it takes a long time to work out. Same is true. So just as it is from turning away from life to death, the same is true when you turn away from death to life. 
that actually when you turn away from death to life, you are opening up to God, that you are beginning a life as a new creation. Does it look different immediately? Not always. But if you lean into it, do you begin to become more and more like him? Yes, you do. Do you lean into it? Do you begin to experience more and more of life? Do you live forever? Well, this body won't, but actually, yes, you begin to move towards an eternal life that you start to experience now and one day will take you through the portals of death into the presence of the Lord forever. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about choosing life, not death. I was um, recently really struck, came across a quote. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century was a a Welshman called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he, he wrote books on Romans that if we had the audio book, it would be longer than Lord of the Rings, believe me. Okay, he wrote so many books on Romans, he, he preached on nothing else for about four years at Westminster Chapel. I mean, seriously, I milked everything that could be milked out of the book of Romans. But he said this, and I thought it was a really interesting quote. He said, I do not preach decisions, I preach regeneration." Now, what he meant by that was, as a preacher, I'm not trying to get people to make a decision for Jesus. Whether you make a decision for Jesus, that's, that's the threshold of whether you cross from one thing to another. He said, what I want to make sure is that you have crossed it into the life that that offers. I preach regeneration. That's what I want to see. It's not, I, want to, I don't want to see somebody who's made a decision. I want to see somebody who's received the life that only Jesus can give. Now, how does this work? Well, the problem is we think differently from the way that Paul and the ancients thought. They used to think of people as essentially being like massive containers. And probably most of us, you know, we, we're products of the West. We, we think very short-term, very individualistic. We don't have the kind of mass, corporate, tribal kind of way of thinking that the ancients had. Some of you, perhaps, if you come from other cultures, there might be more of a tribal identity. But, you know, I don't really have any sense of tribe. You know, I mean, I, you know roughly my family roots, I know a bit of that. I roughly kind of think a little bit of national identity. But, you know, people with my background, we're mongrels, really. We don't really know where we fit. We've got no big mass solidarity. Other parts of the world, it's still a little bit different. But in the ancient world, it's very, very different. So you would see, you were fascinated by genealogies because you were in that family and they would think of um, let's say if you were of the tribe of Joseph you would think of Joseph as an individual Joseph but you would think of Joseph as when he was walking around the earth as carrying within him the potential for all of his successors he carried his whole family tree within him and so the ancients would think of people as essentially like massive containers and sometimes you would even see we draw family trees branching out, don't we? They would draw like big containers, massive people, and inside them lots of little people. All the potential people that were carried in Joseph's body, they were in Joseph in a very real sense, right? So whenever the Bible talks about, particularly in Paul, when it talks about in Adam or in Christ, it, he's kind of using that language. He's using container language. And so in Adam... We share in all he did, and we suffer the consequences. And in Christ, we share all he did, and we enjoy the fruits. Big question is, what container do you live in? Which of those two containers are you living in? 
So, for example, at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's like, yay, Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead. What does that mean? We carries on. Well, since death came through a man, Adam sinned, messed up, and then death comes to everybody who's in the container of Adam. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, a new container. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ we'll all be made alive. Because what he did, he did for us because we're in him. When God looks at the container of Jesus, he sees the standing of Jesus. He applies the righteousness of Jesus to everybody who's inside that. We're kind of covered by it. And so this is literally talking about two possible ways to live. Two big stories. If you're in Adam, you're part of that story which has turned away from God, which has substituted the knowledge of God for your own ideas. Therefore, you've become futile in your thinking and you're thinking about, you know, where am I going to get life from? And you look for it in created things rather than creator and you get frustrated because they don't deliver. You're in a broken world that is the consequences of that falling away from life and the embracing of death. You're living under that. And we'll see this worked out over the next few chapters. So he says, if you're in Adam, sin reigns over you, which means that you're in this place where there are, there are things you know you shouldn't do, but you, can't, you just can't help yourself ultimately. When he gets to chapter 7, he says, yeah, what shall I do? I'm a wretched man. You know, the things that I don't want to do, I do. The things that I do want to do, I can't do. I mean, you know, who will deliver me from this body of sin? He talks about how the law of sin and death rules over him. But then, all the way through these next three chapters, he's going to be talking about how if you come from the in Adam story and you get yourself into the in Christ story, in Christ, if you've received the gift, which you do by faith, by belief, if you've received that gift and you're transferred into Christ, then when God looks at you, what he sees is not what you've done wrong, but what Jesus has done right. When you're trying to break something that has a hold in your life, you can go, well, actually, it doesn't, it's not a master over me anymore because Jesus took the worst of it and was completely obedient. He's broken the power of that. Now, does that mean that if you come into Jesus, your life is going to be perfect? No, because you're still living it out in the broken world. Until you're inexorably on the path to the new creation. But at the moment, you're living the new creation in the midst of the old world. And so constantly, what we've got to do is choose. When we've become a Christian, we are now in Christ. But we keep thinking we're back there. We keep thinking, oh, I'm still kind of, well, I just have to do what sin tells me to do. No, you don't. It's not your master ever anymore. So who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says. Thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. You know, we get the power in here. We begin to experience the powers of the age to come. We begin to experience the good things that God gives to those who are in relationship with him. We come back into that place where he can lavish upon us all the things that he wants to give to his children. Love and peace and joy. And we know that ultimately we're on the path that is going to lead into the fullness of eternal life, not just the taste of it. And so we have this glorious hope. It's two stories. Two stories. Now somebody wisely said, every single one of us is living out a story with our lives. Problem is, we're living it out in the middle of bigger stories. 
We, we all have stories within which we belong, and those stories shape us, and they give our story meaning and context. This is a really interesting thought to think about. The story you live under will ultimately, inevitably, become the story you live out. The story you live under will inevitably become the story that you live out. If you're not sure and you're still living in the Adam story, inevitably, you're going to be curling into yourself. But if you know you're living the Jesus story, that that's the story, that that's now the grace in which you stand, then whether we get it right or wrong, day by day, as we lean into it particularly, as we choose it, as we reckon it, as we account ourselves for it, we're taking steps more and more into life. And that life, he has plans for us beyond the grave. That life begins now, but it goes on forever. What story are you living in? So we're going we're to have a time of response and prayer. So I can, can I ask you to stand? Um, Abby and the guys, come back. Chris and Frush. Now, as we were praying before the service, as we always do, we always um, ask God to come and to help us and to bless us as we seek to spend time together in his presence. One of the things we're always doing is asking God to give us a little bit of guidance. And one of the pictures that we had was of, of people who are a little bit bound by, as it were, golden rope. And the golden bit was a bit confusing because it kind of suggests something good, but actually it's not liberating. And I think in many ways that's... That's the law. That's this sense of trying to please God by rule-keeping. And that's not the heart of God. He didn't give us laws so that we would keep them. He gave us laws so that we would know his heart. What he wants is not people who obediently, slavishly follow a law, but people who relationally act as children and long to please him. So that may speak to some, but I, I just felt tonight there were, there were a couple of things that we should pray into. I think it's, it's most important that we choose the Jesus story all over again. Now for some it might be the first time you have ever consciously chosen to receive the gift of grace, to put your faith and your trust and your belief in Jesus. Others of us, we may have been Christians for many, many years, but perhaps... Perhaps we don't consciously choose that story all the time. We keep thinking that we're stuck in this old one. We haven't got any power to change. We just, you know, life's the way it is. It's just the, the way it has to be. One of the, the fundamental lies of the enemy in the life of a Christian is nothing's changed. And he's totally wrong. When you become a Christian, everything's changed. You just have to keep realizing it and standing in it. And so it might be that we just need to kind of say, Lord, I just want to stand again, conscious that I'm standing in the story of Jesus. So let's start there. Um, we also wanted to invite people for physical healing as well, because there's lots of things about the Adam story that are wrong. It's all part of a broken world and a, a world marred by sin and suffering and sickness. But the Jesus story is marked by healing and life and hope and renewal. And so we wanted to pray for physical healing as well. Lord, as we stand before you, we want to thank you for the gift. More amazing than we could ever understand.
And although um, this story is a, a massive story, a, a mind-blowing epic that is the whole story of all of existence, we pray that you'd help us to find our place in it. We thank you for the offer of life in Christ Jesus. For the power that comes through living under that story rather than continuing to live out the story of Adam. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just bring us revelation as we stand before you. May you show us, Lord, where we stand and release assurance for the Christian. Conviction for those who have yet to say yes to you. Break off any chains of law-keeping as a way of trying to be right. I really felt this morning as we prayed at the end of the talk that it's worth reminding everybody that being a Christian is not a lifestyle choice not choosing to live in a certain kind of way it's not a moral choice it's choosing to live under a different story Lord we want to find ourselves in you so we're going to continue in worship we'd love to pray tonight that each of us as we continue to walk in this kind of broken and divided world that we would keep taking our stand in Jesus. We keep remembering what it is to be in him. And it might be that at this moment, you just need to make a statement again of that's where I belong. I'm in the story of Jesus. It might be that part of the brokenness of the world is really afflicting you at the moment. Sin, sickness, suffering. Perhaps what you need is forgiveness or healing forgiveness and freedom and we'd love to pray for you as well